You know, we started a new series for the new year titled Nine Choices to a Changed Life, addressing the ways in which our will, that is our choice, links with the Holy Spirit to choose to become more like Christ. We've been looking at the nine characteristics of Christ that make up our new spiritual DNA that are listed in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23. Or verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. These characteristics are called the fruit of the Spirit because they're the face, so to speak, the character of Christ. And if we know Jesus, we desperately desire to become more like him. And those who know and love Jesus have the Holy Spirit indwelling indwelling them, giving them both the power and the desire to carry out these character traits. We're not about a self-help program here. This is not about personal transformation on our own efforts. So tonight we look at the kindness and goodness that Christ wants to develop in us. He's the one who does the work, but we do have to match our wills to his effort in our lives. We have to choose kindness and goodness over self-interest and self-gratification. We all respect compassionate people, don't we? We contribute to GoFundMe accounts in the name of compassion. We respect the heck out of people like the late Mother Teresa who gave her life and her money and all of her resources to the outcast and the oppressed and the poor. We want to be kind and good. And we can change. We can become more like Jesus. We can grow in our kindness and goodness. We can both experience the kindness and goodness of the Lord and pour it out into the lives of others when we understand what it looks like to be priest in his kingdom and what it looks like to be truly religious. These two realities will make more sense as we move forward, but right now I just want to plant the seed. Just remember the goodness and kindness of the Lord are personally experienced and poured out into the lives of others when we understand what it looks like to be priest walking in true religion. So to go where we need to go tonight, that is to learn about the Lord's kindness and goodness and to walk in it in our, uh, ourselves, we're going to look at a parable of Jesus the story called The Good Samaritan. And many of you have probably read that before. And I'm going to have you read it on your own before we jump into it. So we'll read it together. But for now, on your own, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, on your phone uh, or in one of the Bibles out there, a Bible that you brought. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. You can even Google it on your phone if you're not familiar with the Bible. Just look up The Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and we're going to be reading through verse 37. So read that on your own. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37, the story of the Good Samaritan.
All right. Let's go ahead and read it together. Let's read it together out loud. I'm just kidding. It's too long of a story for that. That would get very confusing. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought, to him, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this crystal clear picture of what it means to have compassion. To turn our backs on legalism and apathy and turn our face to you, Lord. The one who, as we sang tonight in that song, Reckless Love, you get your hands dirty when you come after us, Lord. And you never stop, even though we don't deserve it. Lord, would you give us that heart for people who are difficult, who are challenging, who are needy, who are broken, and who are risky to serve. In Jesus' name, amen. So the story begins with an expert in religious law, a lawyer of sorts for the Jewish people who worked at helping God's people discern God's laws and all the commentaries written about God's law so that people would follow God's word. The religious leader stood up attempting to test Jesus, and he asked him in verse 25, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So what's the secret? The leader stood up attempting to test Jesus. And then Jesus answered, appealing to the religious leader's expertise. You'll see him painting this religious leader into a corner here. He says, Jesus says, what's written in the law? He replied in verse 26, how do you read it? The religious leader then replies, verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says in verse 28, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So Jesus says, you got it. You got the main point of why you're here on planet earth. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You got it. That's it. Then the story heats up a bit. This religious leader gets a little bit cheeky. Okay, he tries to get academic on Jesus. Listen to how Jesus responds to it. In verse 29, but he, that is the religious leader, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, this seems like a dumb question because the religious leader was an expert in the law. Remember, think religious lawyer of sorts. He knew the law. 
And yet he's asking Jesus, who's my neighbor? You see, the issue was this religious leader knew the law academically. That is, he knew it intellectually. But he didn't know it in terms of application because you can't love your neighbor when you don't even understand who your neighbor is. And Jesus masterfully backs the leader into a corner and he's about to show him through parable that he knows the law in his head, but he doesn't know it in his heart. Here's how he does it. Let's pick up the next verse where Jesus replies to the man's question, that question being, who's my neighbor? In verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So a little background here. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level, and Jericho is 800 feet below, below sea level, or above sea level, rather. So the, the, this was a very dangerous, curvy road, and it was a gold mine for robbers who wanted to hide that they might attack passerbys. And it was considered extremely dangerous, but it was a road that they couldn't avoid. The religious leader in the parable's audience would have been familiar with both this dangerous road and the image of the man, the Jewish man, being left for half dead. Do you see the point of Jesus sharing this story with this man who had an academic understanding of the law but wasn't applying it with the compassion of Christ? You see, you can academically argue your way out of a lot of things. You cannot argue with simple compassion. Did you stop? Did you let yourself get interrupted with the need of another or did you not? It's that simple. We don't know God's word if we don't show compassion. It's that easy. We may know it here, but the Lord's interested in us showing it here with our hands. It doesn't deal with compassion passively or abstractly. It's painfully clear and the application ridiculously simple. Did you stop? Did you not? Jesus continues in verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. The listeners would have known the life of a Jewish priest. There were 24 teams of priests, and they served only two weeks a year, just 14 days every year. And the priests traveling down this dangerous road to Jerusalem from Jericho would have been one of 12,000 priests living in Jericho. So they were all going up and down this road constantly. He was likely on his way home from serving in the temple, probably on a spiritual high, Remember the, remembering the excitement and the joy of serving in the most holy place on planet Earth at the time for 14 days. He was likely on a high. But here in the story, the priest is confronted with the true grit and risk of someone in need, and he drops the ball. Why do you think this priest was afraid to serve this hurt, broken Jewish man. I think the implication for the audience here was he didn't know if the man was alive or dead, and by Jewish law, he would be ceremonially unclean for seven days if he touched a dead man. So we see him walking by the dying man from a distance. He went to the other side of the road, and this is verbiage used often in the Gospels when it speaks to those who are trying to avoid ceremonial, ceremonial uncleanliness. That is, they go to the other side of the road. They avoid the messiness. This piece of the story highlights our first realization, that being 
True kindness and goodness can only be experienced from Christ and mirrored to others when we understand what it means to be priest in God's kingdom. True priest. We know that true priests have a heart of kindness and goodness. Knowledge is good, but by itself, it separates us from others. The letter of the law, void of the compassion of Christ, is a weapon of torture, not an instrument of grace. It judges and condemns. It chooses pride over humility. A true priest knows the law intellectually because truth is very, very important. But it applies it, leading to kindness and goodness. We're priests. Did you know that? If we know and love Jesus, we're priests in his kingdom, and there is no greater calling. I'm not above you. Uh, I'm not below you. If you know and love Jesus, we are on equal footing, an honorable footing as priests in his kingdom. It says so in 1 Peter 2.9. It says, but you, that's those who love Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And a true priest is one who is filled with wisdom, not just knowledge. And see, when we think of wisdom or knowledge, we use those words interchangeably. We think they are synonymous, that if you know a lot, that you also have some sort of power just because you have a lot of knowledge. Not so in the ancient world. They separate these terms wisdom and knowledge. It says in James 3, verse 17, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. That means the more we knew, we know, the more compassion we should show. The more we know, the more compassion we should show. If there is a dichotomy there between those two, if we're not growing in compassion, but we're growing in knowledge of the word, there's a problem. It's an intimacy with the Lord problem. We're, we are not connecting to the love and compassion of Christ in our own life like we sing about every Sunday night. And as a result, we're not showing it to others. We might be learning more about the Bible, but if we don't show it, we don't truly know it. Wisdom is full of mercy and it's considerate. And this priest, he wasn't considerate on his way home from the temple, was he? He had just, I'm sure, been enmeshed in this experiential knowledge of, of seeing God's temple, really the shadow of heaven. That's what the temple was. It was to be a shadow of heaven. Yet he's in the midst of this holiness and his heart's far from God. It's easy for us to come home from faith walkers or Sunday night or home group and be on a spiritual high because we've learned a particular truth and then not allow someone to interrupt us in our day-to-day -day life. Not allow us to interrupt our agenda or our goals, or our to-dos with human needs that are messy and painful sometimes to address. The question for us is painfully simple. Who are we stopping for in our lives right now? Who are we allowing to interrupt us? Jesus was great at responding to the ministry of interruption, wasn't he? He was constantly on his way somewhere and someone would interrupt him. Like the story where uh, he's on his way to heal an influential person and a woman who was considered an outcast touched him and interrupted his ministry and everybody else encouraged him just to move on. But Jesus healed her. Most of his ministry came in the form of interruptions. So what form of ministry will ours come in? Most of our ministry that will be truly impactful, we will not be able to plan for. Do you know that's intentional? Really, the biblical definition of compassion is allowing other people to interrupt you with their need. 
That's what it is. We may have an agenda. I love Google Calendar. I love goals. I love to-do lists. But we have to let his agenda trump ours. To be open every day. Lord, interrupt my schedule with your plan. Your plans are glorious, and I want to follow those. Help me to be sensitive. Help me respond to the needs of those around me today. Even if it means I'm late to a meeting from time to time. Even if it means maybe I'm not able to hang out with the type of people that I would necessarily choose. Help me to be interrupted in your name. Help me to choose kindness and goodness over self-interest and comfort and ease. Can we make that our prayer? I know I want to grow in that. Jesus continues, he continues to highlight what it means to be a true priest in his kingdom in verse 32. He says, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the Levite saw the man and then passed by on the other side, but it appears like this Levite had a little bit more interest in the man than the priest did. and Because we see a pause in this Levite. He doesn't just move on right away, and the NIV doesn't pick it up, but the NLT does. So same exact verse, different translation. It says, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. He appears to actually take time to look at the victim. So he knows he's alive, it seems, and he moves on anyway. He does the unthinkable. And this temple servant, this Levite, was a minister of worship, an interpreter of the law. He had an important role, and he knew better, and he too blows it. Many think that the priest thought to himself, and this is a parable, it's a story, but the priest thought to himself that maybe one of the points was the priest thought, I'll leave this problem to the Levite following behind me. And that the Levite likewise may have thought to himself, since the priest ignored this man, so will I. It must not be important or it must be unsafe. Regardless of whether or not this meaning was intended by Jesus to be understood by the audience, parables are given in Scripture as a, a genre of truth, so to speak, where there is a main point. And then there can be a variety of applications that come out of it. It's supposed to stir our imaginations as we think what can come out of the main point. So it's safe to say the main point of this parable is that religious work does not make the worker truly religious, does it? We can be priest positionally before God as ones who are set apart, saved by him, but not walking out our priesthood. And by application here, I want to draw our attention to the danger of following other Christians into hard-heartedness towards people. I think there are a number of ways we can do that. First off, God's people, his flock, are the op apple of his eye, the scriptures say. And to lead one of his little ones into sin, Jesus said it would be better for us to tie a millstone around our neck and it be tossed into the heart of the sea than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. You know, it can be hard-heartedness theologically. It breaks my heart when I read of another believer who has changed their spiritual convictions and posted it to Facebook. I've read on numerous occasions one who have, uh, ones who have given themselves to a theology that is called all-inclusive salvation. And while it sounds good, it's not. The idea is that, uh, that Jesus is not the only way to salvation, that there are many paths to God, and it spits in the face of the cross of Christ who died for sin, for our sin. And it makes the resurrection of Christ obsolete. And then there are those who form a holy huddle. 
and they wouldn't dream of inviting anyone into their home group or to church because they want to keep a safe place for them and theirs, people who are like them, who aren't going to make life messy for their group here on Sunday night or in our home groups or in our personal friendship circles. So whether the hard-heartedness is theological or relational, both are dead serious. Priest in God's kingdom, you and I must be marked with compassion. And that means we don't just try, it would be easier to keep the peace, but the godly thing to do is to confront theological error in believers we know and love. Because people can be led astray. We don't want brothers and sisters on down the line to be led astray. So the compassionate thing to do is confront. And I know most of us hate confrontation. And if you love confrontation, you're weird. Uh, Or if it's ignoring the needs of someone because we'd rather just be comfortable watching Netflix in our living rooms. It's hard-hearted. We may know a lot of truth, but it needs to be demonstrated in compassion. So now we get to the hero of the story, where the priest and the Levite demonstrate the ungodly response. The Samaritan shows the Christ-like response. In verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Compassion not only identifies God's true priest, it also demonstrates true religion. And in Scripture, true religion is not just an adherence to uh, good habits like attending church, attending home group or whatever, just to check it off so you feel like your duty is done. True religion in the Bible, according to James 1.27, says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and spotless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, roll up your sleeves. And those that society has given up on, you be my hands and feet. You be my heart to them. So then true kindness and goodness is true religion, whereas dutiful obligation without everyday expressions of Christ-like compassion, they're empty, they're irreligious. And this would have been painfully offensive to Jesus' audience. When they heard him making the Samaritan the hero, the example of mercy, they would have been irate. The NLT, I think, highlights this by translating verse 33. Then Jesus said, a despised Samaritan came along. They were despised. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. You couldn't have picked a more unlikely hated example than that of the Samaritan. They hated each other. I don't think it's reading too much into it. In verse 37, when Jesus asked the religious leader, which of these do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? I believe the religious leader couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan because he simply says, the one who had mercy on him. There was real hatred here. This this religious leader painted himself into a corner that he could not get out of now. Because Samaritans were considered to be religious mutts who had kind of a mixed background where the Jews were the pure race from God. They also did have some very poisonous theology. 
And Jesus is saying that truth is important. We see that all over, all over scripture. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says he is the word made flesh. He is truth. Truth matters, but so does compassion. Jesus is drawing in extremes here to get the religious leader's attention. True kindness and goodness is about what we do, not just what we see. We as Christians in America are great at diagnosing problems. We can look at our schools and say, here's what's wrong. They need to have prayer in schools. They need to, we need to have this. We need to have that. You look at colleges and can talk about how uh, uh, secular they've become. We can look at our neighbors and talk about the sinful habits and lifestyles that they've fallen in. Seeing a problem does nothing. We see it and we respond to it. The Good Samaritan did more than simply notice the need. I counted nine different acts of compassion in this parable. He spent time and money, for instance, and more notably, he embraced risk because the more time he spent on that road, the more he risked the same fate of this Jewish man that was left for dead on the road. Not only did he give his time and money and risk, but he also gave his feet. This was a long walk. And he put the Samaritan on the donkey and he walked. He gave him his feet, again, exposing himself to more time on the road. He gave him his heart by showing compassion. He gave him his eyes by seeing a need and responding with dignity and love. Just to name a few. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. The bad news is that naturally we are like this priest and Levite. We play with religious activities, but our hearts are far from compassion. We want to be known as good, smart, and influential, but we don't want to roll up our sleeves and do the compassionate, inconvenient, dirty work of the priest that doesn't fit into our schedule. But the good news is that Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. During Jesus' ministry, he oftentimes showed compassion in response to hurt and need. In Matthew 14, he saw a great multitude and healed their sick. In Matthew 6, he saw those who were like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them to teach them. Jesus had compassion on those who were lost spiritually, the sick, the needy, the widowed, the single mothers, the lepers, the social outcasts, the criminals, and even murderers. He never took a break from kindness and compassion. Compassion was his constant pursuit right up until the end of his earthly life when he showed compassion to the thief on the cross. Jesus ends the parable by telling the religious leader and us in verse 37, go and do likewise. The question is not who will serve me. The question is who I will serve. And the more mature, we're in, the more mature we become in Christ, the more compassionate our lives should become. And it starts simply by doing. There's no more learning that needs to happen here. Compassion is a simple lesson for us to learn and apply to our lives, but it comes by doing. We must show compassion. And it can be simple acts. I know uh, just the other day, there was, uh, I was taking my, my uh, Josh, a young life leader in, in the car with me, and was taking a good friend of mine and kind of member of our family. And uh, we were, I was picking Timmy up from baseball practice or basketball practice or one of those practices. I can't keep them all straight. And so I'm taking him home. And we see this kid who's right by the school, and it's pouring down rain. And he was a kid who was new to Bexley because I didn't recognize him. And I picked him up. And I had to be real careful, you know, because here's a guy in a great big SUV that, you know, could be a little intimidating with the guy. Hey, you need a ride, kid? You know, so, 
So I, I looked out and said, hey, I've got a student at the school. This is Timmy, Josh, whatever, do you want to ride? And he came in, and I could tell he was very uncomfortable. But I think it was raining so hard he'd take, well, long story even longer, he lives all the way on the other side of Bexley. Okay, so he all, it was like a mile and a half walk in the rain, pouring down rain. And so I'm trying to make him comfortable, and uh, I needed to serve him by trying to loosen him up. And I love teenagers. You know, I really do. And uh, it's one of my favorite life stations. You know, most people don't feel that way about teenagers, but I love them. Go young life. And uh, uh, anyway, he's in the car, and I said, I could tell he was uncomfortable, so I said, you know, uh, this is Timmy. He goes to school. You see him around. You, you know, yeah, 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 I know Timmy. And he plays this sport and that sport. And I said, you know, one thing you don't know about him that you probably should, he likes to play with Barbies. <laughs> and he likes his mom to make little baseball outfits for his brother. And he starts laughing and loosening up. And, but it can be simple acts. It doesn't have to be some super spiritual thing. All right, it can be throwing your son under the bus to make another kid feel comfortable. Okay, it can be simple stuff here, folks. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, it says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that, that person? Dear children, let us love with words or speech. Let us love, sorry, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Diagnosing the other problem, the problem in someone else, and doing nothing is wrong and legalistic. Let us be men and women of action. Jesus acted on our behalf, and so should we act on behalf of others. Let us be interrupted this week in his name. Amen. We're going to take our offering at this time. It's a time for those who are regular with us to give and continue to worship in that way. Please, uh, if you're new with us, definitely fill out one of these cards so we can keep you in the loop of what's going on here around Awaken. And then also, for all of you, remember to write down your prayer request here. Um, also, Kimball and I will be in the back, or I will at the very least. Uh, if you are interested in baptism, please come talk to me. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you came to us at great risk, Lord, and you said it was the joy set before you that you endured the cross scorning its shame. Lord, you died for us. You shed your blood for us. You lived a difficult and persecuted life on this earth for us for joy's sake because you loved us. Lord, we want that to be developed in us and we thank you that this is a blood-bought promise. We can claim it. You will grow compassion in us because you promise it in your word. So we cry out for it, Lord, and help us tomorrow and the next day and the next to walk it out, Lord, to see ways that we can lay down our lives for others, both small and great. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.